This is the Trails Church Podcast. At the Trails Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples through the gospel in community and on mission. If you'd like more information about our church, visit our website, thetrails.org. Now, here's today's podcast. Good morning. Please feel free to have a seat. My name is Josh Stewart, if we haven't had a chance to meet yet, and it's my joy to lead us in studying God's Word today. Would you please join me in Psalm 35? Psalm 35. If you know it, please feel free to finish this phrase with me. I'm confident you're going to know it. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's right. We all know this phrase. In a, in a speak it into existence kind of way, the idea is actually pretty simple. If I say that words can't hurt me, then they won't. But the problem with that is just like modern ways of manifesting and speaking it into existence, that doesn't work because that's not reality. That's not how reality works. The reality is that words do matter. Words shape us all the time, both for good and for bad. The Bible we read shapes us. The songs we sing shape us. The words we hear and the words we say to ourselves shape us all the time. And the reality is words can hurt us. We can all remember the sting we felt when words were used to discourage or destroy us in various ways. Mocking words that made fun of our appearances, accusing words that shame and blame unfairly, hateful words that hurt, words that do far more damage than any sticks or stone could ever So while the sticks and stone line may not be helpful, I really do appreciate the effort, though, because we do need help learning how to live in a world that hates us and that throws and hurls hurtful words all the time. We need help learning how to process accusations and persecutions and words of conflict because, quite frankly, the world is discipling us to react the wrong way. The world is discipling us to react to hard words with rage, retaliation, and retreat rather than gospel reflection and gospel love. So we do need help, and that's where Psalm 35 is going to enter into the picture, to offer real help in a real God who is for us. In Psalm 35, David is being accused by hateful and deceptive enemies. And so when, in the face of these accusations, he runs to his God to be his defense. He relies on God to fight for him. And I think this is a wonderful and necessary song for the church. It's a song that we must learn to sing as sojourners and exiles in a foreign world. It's a song that we must become accustomed to singing as we grow accustomed to accusations and persecutions and all sorts of hurtful things. It's a song that will show us how to hope in God when words hurt us and how to run to him when the world hates us. It's a song that we'll turn to right now. For those who are taking notes, we'll have three movements today. First, we're going to walk through Psalm 35 in its entirety, and we'll see that David has written for us a song to sing when words sting. And then we're going to turn, once we see what David's doing in his heart, we're going to ask, how does that happen in our own lives? How do we run to the Lord? We're going to pull out three prayers to pray when words cause pain. And the last thing we're going to do is end by looking at the singular hope that we have when the world hates us. So would you please stand and join me in Psalm 35, verse 27. Verse 27, we're just going to read one verse because we're going to go through it all, but right now, verse 27 is what I want us to focus on because it's what David wants the people to sing as he ends this psalm, so I want it to be our framework as we begin. This is God's word for us this morning, which never fails. 
Psalm 35, verse 27. Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please be seated. So in Psalm 35, David provides a song to sing when words sting. And we see three movements throughout the psalm, his cry in pain, the source of his pain, and then his hope in the midst of the pain. If you look at verses 1 through 10, I see this as almost like an urgent cry for help. Much like we do in our own prayer lives, right? When we're in need or we're hurting, we often don't just start listing everything out. We just go, Lord, help me. Lord, I need you. And then we get into the specifics. I kind of see that in this text in the same way. It's like an overture, hitting the big themes. And so let's read verses 1 through 10. Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and rise for my help. Draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil against me. Let them be like chaff before the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them away. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. For without cause they hid their net for me. Without cause they dug a pit for my life. Let destruction come upon him when he does not know it. And let the net that he hid ensnare him. Let him fall into it to his destruction. Then my soul will rejoice in the Lord, exulting in his salvation. All my bones shall say, oh, Lord, who is like you? Delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him, the poor and needy from him who robs him. David calls on the Lord to fight for him, and I specifically want us to notice his reliance on God in these verses. People are coming against David, and David is asking God to be his defense, The word contend here is a legal term. It refers to fighting with words. And the word fight is a military term. It means to fight. Very simple. As we'll soon see, David does not need physical protection as much as he needs protection against false allegations. And so he's using two metaphors here. David is saying he needs God to be his defense attorney who stands on his side with the truth and advocates for him against his accuser and proves his innocence. But he also needs God to be his warrior who stands in the gap between him and his enemy and who keeps him safe. But notice, this models David and his reliance on the Lord. But David needs protection, but he also needs to know that God, not himself, is going to be his salvation. His hope is that God will be his protection. And then in verses 4 through 8, David curses his enemies, specifically asking God to put them to shame and destroy him. His enemies are wickedly and wrongly and intentionally trying to cause David harm. So David asked the Lord to do what he said way back in Psalm 1, which was to make them like chaff in the wind. You know those kids, dandelions, when you blow them and then the seeds, I don't know the science of it, but the seeds go everywhere. They're being controlled by the wind and even by your breath. That's what he's asking the Lord to do is control these enemies and drive them far away. Let them have no power here. Use your power to drive them far And not only that, but he asked that they'd fall and be destroyed. That they'll reap what they sow. That very evil they're trying to harm him with would fall back on their own head. And then in verses 9 through 12, he is confident that the Lord is going to act. And so he waits, ready to praise God for his goodness and his deliverance. 
So we've seen this kind of overture, his initial cry in the pain. Now I want us to see what's going on in this dude's life that leads him to cry out like this. And that's what we'll see in verses 11 through 16, where we see the source of his pain are specifically allegations against him that are being lobbied and, and lodged at him from people who he's cared for. Let's look. Starting verse 11. Malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me of things that I do not know. They repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft. But I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with head bowed down on my chest. I went about as though I grieved for my friend or my brother. As one who laments his mother, I bowed down in mourning. But at my stumbling, they rejoiced and gathered. They gathered together against me. Wretches whom I did not know tore at me without ceasing. Like profane mockers at a feast, they gnash at me with their teeth. You see, verses 11 and 12 contain the clearest statement of what's going on in David's circumstances right now. It shows us that violent, false witnesses are rising up and throwing charges at David just to bring him down. The fact that it says, they ask me of things that I don't know, isn't that David is dumb, it's that they're lying. So they say, hey, you did this. And he's like, I have no clue what you're talking about. Maybe you know what that's like with your brother or your sister. This all helps us understand why David uses the word contend in verse 1. David needs the Lord to be his defense and to fight with words against these accusations that are being thrown at him. And David's hurting because of this. And he's hurting because he's been betrayed. We notice in this text that he's done good. We don't know who the enemies are exactly, but it's clear that David sought their welfare. It says that he prayed for them. He mourned for them. But when he was down and calamity struck him, what did they do? They kicked the man while he was down and saw this as their opportunity to strike. And this is wrong. And it hurts him. In fact, it hurts him deeply. The, the only other places where this word bereft is used in the Old Testament are in Isaiah, and both of them refer to losing a child. That's how deeply David is in pain here. So we see more context. David's crying out because he's hurting because people are, are throwing lies at him and accusing him of things he did not do. But now let's look at his hope. String in verse 17. How long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their destruction, my precious life from the lions. I will thank you in the great congregation. In the mighty throng, I will praise you. Let not those rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes, and let not those wink the eye who hate me without cause. For they do not speak peace, but against those who are quiet in the land, they devise words of deceit. They open wide their mouths against me. They say, aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. You have seen, O Lord. Be not silent. The Lord, be not far from me. Awake and rouse yourself from my vindication, from my cause, my God and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness, and let them not rejoice over me. Let them not say in their hearts, aha, our heart's desire. Let them not say we have swallowed him up. Let them be put to shame and disappointed altogether who rejoice in my calamity. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves against me. Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and save forevermore. Great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. Then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. So these verses feature another cry for help and then more prayers against his enemy. David is basically saying, God, these people are coming at me for no reason. They have evil desires, and they're just trying to oppress and accuse the innocent. Would you please stop them and protect me? David notes how his enemies are specifically trying to pin him 
on things, trying to pin stuff on him, right? They're trying to find all this evidence that doesn't exist. But notice David is not hoping in his own ability to defend himself or even keep his record clean. He's not trying to scrub his social media to make sure nobody can find anything. Rather, his hope is in the fact that God sees everything, and God knows exactly what's going on in this situation. And I absolutely love the comparison that David makes in verses 21 and 22. I want to direct your eyes there, because look at this. Look what's going on here. The enemies of David open their mouths and accuse. They open wide. They say, ha, gotcha. What does David do? What would you do? David turns to the Lord and says, God, I know you see. Would you open your mouth even wider? Because I know if you speak, then the truth will reign. Would you please speak on my defense and prove these liars to be liars? That's what's going on. David's hope is that God sees him and God knows what is true. And then from there flows this avalanche of requests related to David being proved righteous in the situation and God punishing his enemies. So the psalm ends with David's confident hope that the Lord is going to act. He knows the Lord sees. He knows the Lord will deliver the poor and needy. And so he invites the people of God to confidently sing God's praise. And what does he want? Ringing off our lips. Great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servants. If I might paraphrase that, I'd say great is the Lord who delights in taking care of you. God delights in taking care of his people. And friends, I think there are two realities that are driving David into prayer. One is the fact that God sees everything and knows what's going on in David's situation. Where else do you go? You go to God. But the second one is this. I think it's the primary reality. It's that God cares for him. And here's, I want to defend that with two things. First, at the end of this psalm, this is the reality that he wants the people of God to remember. It's the reality that he wants the people of God to sing. So that shows its importance. He's emphasizing, great is the Lord who delights in taking care of his people. But the other is more operational. Simply put, you don't go to God unless you believe that he cares for you. That is the singular obstacle that all of us face. We often don't go to God when we wrestle with believing that he cares for us. And so this is the reality. Think of, we put this together. David knows that God loves him. And he knows that God sees everything. So rather than retaliate, or retreat, he runs to the Lord. That's what we see. The psalm ends with David's confident hope that he will act, and he waits, waiting on God to vindicate the king. So that's what's going on in the text. We had to do all this work to really understand what's going on, because this is showing us David's worship from his heart. And we had to understand, what are the situations? Like, why is he in pain? What's going on here? And how is his heart operating? What is captivating this dude's heart that's leading him to cry out to the Lord with this prayer? And what we see is a really important principle. The song to sing when words sing demonstrates for us how we can process accusations and persecution and hurtful words with hope in the God who's for us. And so the principle we learn from David is this. When words hurt us and the world hates us, we must run to the God who sees us and cares for us. When words hurt us and the world hates us, we must run to the God who sees us and cares for us. That's the main principle I see today from Psalm 35. And friends, that's probably the biggest question on the table this morning. Do we believe that the Lord truly cares for us? I'm not saying do we theologically assent to it or can we check a box, but are we operating out of this? 
Are we operating out of the reality of the Lord's care? Here's a question to help us diagnose our heart. When people say mean things about you, they accuse you, they hurt you with hurtful words, what are you most prone to do? Retaliate? Retreat? Run away? Or do we run to the Lord and rely on his care? Often, for all of us, our default setting is to either defend ourselves and retaliate. Oh, yeah? I'll come at this. And for others, our default setting is to retreat, bottle it up, or just avoid it altogether. But Psalm 35 offers us a better way. It teaches us how to operate in the confidence of God's care so that we can then operate in the confidence of his love. And so, when words hurt you and the world hates us, we must run to the God who loves us. And friends, this is the battle that is being waged in our hearts all the time. Will we trust that God cares for us, or will we rely on our own ability to defend ourselves, or will we rely and think it's all up to me to keep myself safe? This is the battle of worship that's always being waged, and what captivated David in the same battle is the fact that God cares for him and delights to care for him, and God sees everything. You combine these two truths, and that is a sure and steady hope in the midst of hurtful words. So we do not need to defend ourselves as much as we need to learn to entrust ourselves to the Lord who cares for us. Underlying all of our conflicts in this room, in our marriages, in our workplaces, in our parenting, and our own interactions with our neighbors, whatever it might be, is this battle. Is the Lord really for me, or am I on my own? And Psalm 35 models what it looks like to receive this gospel truth and run to the Lord because he cares. And I know the reality is that there are probably a lot of things, millions of things going on in our lives and hearts that might be fogging up the goodness of God, like dark clouds that make it to where we can't see today. And I pray this morning, and I do hope that even in our time today, the Lord would drive those clouds away. Because, friend, we have every reason to believe that the Lord cares for us because he's proven it on the cross. See his love forever proved. The cross demonstrates how deeply the triune God loves and cares for his people because God was pleased to not spare his son the pain of Calvary so that you and I could be welcomed in as children and friends. And God is a perfect friend to his people. And God is a perfect father to his children. He cares for you. And he delights in it. Think of that. What does God love to do? It says right here, God loves taking care of his people. It shows his strength. It demonstrates his power. It shows his glory and his greatness that he can do things that we can't. And he loves to take care of us. So if he did not spare his son for us, how will he not also help us in the face of accusations and hurtful words? But not only that, Christ sympathizes with you when you experience the sting of words that hurt because he went through the same thing perfectly and fully. If you look at verses 11 through 16 recently, just, just skim over them. Now imagine if you were to place these and kind of have this as a framework and you start reading through the Gospels, pick a Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what you would find is this is almost exactly what happens in his trial and crucifixion. Kangaroo court, false trial, false, false charges, thrown against Jesus, and he did not revile. He entrusted himself to a faithful creator. You and I have a song of hope to sing when words sting because our Savior was stung by the very same things, hurtful words thrown at him. 
He was rejected by those he came to save, which culminated in the spectacle of shame that was his death on a Roman cross. But what the world did not know is as they lifted up the lamb to be slain, he was being offered as a substitute for the world. And so he knows what it feels like to be rejected, and he empathizes with you when you're hurt. What a wonderful truth. David saw this in part. We see the whole. The cross is proven for the people of God, how much God cares for his people. And the ministry and life of Jesus proves that he sympathizes with you when people hate you because of him. So we must not respond to hatred with hatred. Instead, by the Spirit, we must entrust ourselves to the God who perfectly knows our situation and perfectly cares for our souls. So how will this help us when words hurt us tomorrow? As we've seen, this is a matter of worship. Who will you trust? Will you believe that God cares for you or will you think it's up to you? This is the battle we all face. In the light of the cross, Psalm 35 shows us and demonstrates very clearly what it looks like to entrust ourselves to God's care. And so what I want to do is draw out three prayers to pray when words cause pain flowing from Psalm 35. But before we get into the specifics, I want to explain the heart dynamic of what's going on. Because we don't want to just take this like a mantra and just repeat it and think, okay, cool, that did something. There's something going on in our hearts. That, that's where worship is. We need to see how do I actually worship the Lord through the psalm. And it looks something like this. You might pray in your heart something to this extent. And we're going to show a variety of the expressions of this, but it's this. Lord, you see everything. And you care for me. So would you please help me? Lord, you see everything. And you care for me. Would you please help me right now? Notice how simple that is. You could pray that. And notice what you're doing. You're not relying on your own ability. In the moment when someone's mean to you, you are entrusting yourself and saying, Lord, you see me and you love me, so help me in whatever way that's going to look. And so I just want to see that heart dynamic expressed in three situations that are going to come into our lives, three hurtful, hard situations when people hurt us and words cause pain. Here are three prayers that we can pray. We're going to walk through them. The first prayer is for times of accusation. And it's, Lord, you see, please fight for me. Lord, you see, please fight for me. As Christians, we should not be surprised by accusation. Jesus tells us the world will hate us. So when they do, it's just fulfilling what he said. Just as they accuse Christ of being a devil, they will accuse us of the same. Just as Rome accused the church of being haters of mankind, so today the culture and the world says that the Bible is harmful and oppressive and contains a message of hatred. And this is completely unfair, unmerited, and without cause. But it should not surprise us. In John 15, 25, Jesus explains to his disciples that this must happen. He actually quotes Psalm 35. Jesus takes these words up on his lips and he explains to his disciples that the Jewish people's rejection of Jesus is the fulfillment of this verse. They hated me without cause. The world will accuse us of lies because they hate Jesus. So you'll be accused of being hateful and ignorant. You might be called oppressive for saying a boy is a boy or a girl is a girl. You might be told that you are against women because you believe that a child in the womb deserves a right to life. You might be made fun of for choosing holiness instead of trying to pursue worldliness in order to stay popular. Friends, students, kids, you might be called a bad friend because you know your, your friends are engaged in something that's really harmful, and yet you've gone and told your parents because you love them. And they might respond by saying, you're a terrible friend. Why would you do that? These are unfair. 
These are accusations. What will we do when they come? Or think of how this prayer applies to the most regular accuser we face, Satan, the enemy of our souls. He is the archetype of the one who opens his mouth wide and says, ah, I got you. He throws our past at us. He tempts us to be discouraged and consumed with our failures. He makes us think that we're beyond the grace of God to help us. And when his accusations come and sting, where will we go? Well, when the world accuses us, we do not have to retaliate with hateful actions or words, and we do not need to retreat. Instead, we can run to the Lord and pray, Lord, you see, please fight for me. It might look something like this. Lord, you see, please fight for me. You know they're lying about me, and this hurts. I care about these people, but I can't stop them from thinking this way. Would you please help me and change the way they think or use these accusations in some way for your glory? That's what we're doing. We're entrusting ourselves to God. You and I can't stop anybody from gossiping about us. You and I can't stop anything that comes out of another person's mouth. But you can go to the Lord who's in control. You can entrust yourself to him. And when the enemy accuses us, we do not need to run backward into shame. Instead, we must run to the God who sees the whole picture. You see, while you, me, and Satan are busy staring at our sin, God the Father is busy beholding the glory of the Son, seated at his right hand, in whom we are united. So right now, before the throne, you and I are loved, accepted, and counted righteous because of Jesus. And so when all of us, when we just see our stumbling failures all the time, the Lord sees the bigger picture. He sees the work he's doing in your life. And so in moments of temptation, accusation, we can cry out something like this. Lord, you see, please fight for me. The enemy just wants me to think of all the ways I've failed in the past, but Lord, I genuinely want to trust you right now, and I don't want to sin. I want to care for people. I want to love you and love others. And I know you've justified me, and I know you are at work in me to bear fruit for your glory, so would you please fight for me and help me to trust you? Those are simple prayers to bring home when the world hates us and accuses us, or if the enemy hates us and accuses us, regardless of the source of situation, we can pray, Lord, you see, please fight for me. The second prayer is for times when we see evil and persecution in the world. Again, we should not be surprised when persecution comes in various forms. Paul says that everyone who desires to live a godly life will be persecuted. And so when it comes our way, we can pray something like this. Lord, you see, please bend their knee. Lord, you see, please bend their knee. Notice what we're doing. He's taking the same reality, the same truth. The Lord sees everything and the Lord cares about his people. We're just applying it specifically to the enemies of God, asking that the Lord would make them submit either through conversion or in judgment. And I think this is a helpful way to approach praying for our enemies. Because you see, as we were reading, you might have had a question, wait, Josh, how does this relate with Jesus saying that we should not curse our enemies but pray for them? How does this curse psalm relate to the gospel of grace and forgiveness? Josh, are we even free to pray this this morning as Christians? I, I think we are. And I think with great gospel motivation, gospel love, and gospel confidence, we are free to pray for salvation and judgment using prayers like this from the Psalms. In fact, it's been pointed out that this is the flip side of what's already happening in our prayers anytime you ask the Lord to glorify himself. When you ask the Lord to glorify himself, what you're doing is asking him to stop things that are wicked. When we say, when we pray, Lord, be glorified in me, we're asking him to get rid of and destroy everything wicked in my heart and in the world. And so when we pray for the light to advance, we're asking him to destroy the darkness. It's the opposite side. So we can absolutely pray these. But in Christ, we are not called to repay evil for evil, but to love. And friends, the 
greatest expression of fulfilling Christ's call to love God and love our neighbor is to help our neighbor love God. But we cannot do this. They cannot do this. God does this. God is the one who changes our heart. So that's why we pray. We use Psalm 35 as a means to give us words to say, Lord, you see, you're in control here. Would you bend their knee? Would you flex the beauty of your power and do what only you can do, which is redeem your enemies and make them lovers of you? We can ask the Lord to destroy the darkness by advancing the gospel, to destroy evil by saving his people. As Christians, we are not to pray that the Lord would send a lightning bolt of judgment on our enemies, but rather a Christian on mission. And as we do this, we trust the Lord. We understand that the Lord will punish all sin, and he will fully accomplish his will, either by punishing every sin on the cross for his people, or in judgment for an eternity in hell for those who continue to reject him. And this is why the weapon of the church is not a sword, but the scripture. Why our posture towards our enemies is not to be militant, but missional, because we believe in the redemptive power of God to save his enemies, to save sinners, to justify his name, and accomplish his purposes. So if I can be very clear here, I, I think Psalm 35 does this. It shows us how to pray, Lord, you see, please bend their knee against any industry, idea, group, or movement that is trying to advance evil, oppose the cause of Christ, and use and destroy people. It might look praying something like this. Father, do not let these people have what they desire because their desires are evil. But in line with your great love, will you save them? Would you stop the evil by saving your people? Would you glorify your name and show your unique power by redeeming those who stand against you today? Would you make their plans fail? Would you make their ways dark and confusing? Would you show the world that what they're doing is wrong so that they would experience the shame of their actions and show them how desperately they need a savior in Christ? And would you give them life through your son? I think this is a proper prayer to pray. As Spurgeon puts it, no loyal subject can wish well to rebels. In their hearts, all good men wish confusion to mischief makers. And I think Psalm 35 leads us in that direction with gospel hope. And so I'll echo the words of Ray Ortland for us this morning and ask, what if we prayed for the Lord to raise up the next generation of godly moms and dads and missionaries and pastors and all sorts of gospel advancing people today from some of the darkest industries and places on the planet? Psalm 35 leads us to pray this way, and as we engage with this evil and persecution, we face them with gospel courage and gospel love, and we do what the Lord said through Peter, keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against us as evildoers, they may see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Psalm 35 teaches us how to pray for our enemies. Lord, you see, please bend their knee. There's a third prayer I want us to look at, and it's because I recognize that accusation and persecution may be a little high level. And the place, the arena where we get most hurt from words is often the daily battles we face in our homes, in our workplaces, in our friendships, and all these things. We, like David, face accusation and harsh words all the time, and they often come in the nice little Amazon package of never and always. Never and always. We hear things like this You never do the dishes. You always do this wrong. You never listen to me. You always miss the point. Are you never going to learn? Why do you always make the same mistake? Now, all of these are accusations because if you ever do the dishes once, that makes that not true. (laughs) 
If you ever listen once, that makes that not true. And when you hear that, you are being handled inappropriately. You're being dealt with in a lie. But we're all guilty of this. We've all said things like this. We've also been on the receiving end. And often on the receiving end, when it hurts, what do we do? We retaliate and say, oh, really? I'll take this. And we fight back or we retreat until things feel safe or we just bottle it up. And I think Psalm 35 offers us a different way. Psalm 35 enters the picture in these normal, ordinary, daily battles to provide gospel direction for our daily lives because it teaches us to pray, Lord, you see and you care for me. Lord, you see and you care for me, which is our third prayer. So I want to explore how this might transform your next conflict with a Christian, either in your home or at work or a friendship. And here's a question for you. When two Christians are in conflict, whose side is Jesus on? Who does Jesus care about? The answer is both, because both of you are united to him. Both of you are part of his body, and he wants both of you to be cared for. He wants both of you to be healed, but that's not often how we operate. In a conflict, it's us against us, right? Like we're fighting, and we want to take the other person. We want to prove we're right, but when you remember, and we can just start to see the other person as a brother or a sister who is suffering, that changes everything begins to change our posture because we recognize, Lord, you see what's going on and you care about my hurts, but you also care about theirs. And so it might look like praying something like this. Lord, you see and you care for me. What they said just hurt me and I know that you care about that, but Lord, they're hurting too and I don't wanna hurt your people. I know you want us both to experience healing in you, so would you help me to entrust myself to you? Would you help me to care for them? So friends, whether it's high stakes persecution or the daily little battles, the petty arguments that we have all the time, the same worship issue is at play. Who are we going to trust? Will we believe that God cares for us or will we act like orphans and think we're on our own? If we believe that God cares for us, then we can know we can run to him and pray, Lord, you see and you care for me. And so friends, Psalm 35 teaches us how to hope in God when the world hates us and how to run to him when words hurt us. Just like David hoped in God's care, those who are in Christ must do the same because we have so much confidence because of the cross. He's proved his care for us. Because of the cross, we can actually have hope when the world hates us because our king has overcome the world. Because of the cross, we can actually sing these song, this song, when words sting because we know the Lord hears to, cares to hear our cry. This is good news. David ended this psalm waiting for his deliverance but promising to praise God when he would take care of him. He says, I will tell of your righteousness all the day long. Well, friends, the good news is we don't have to wait like David did. This is our song today, and this will be our song forever because the hope that David was waiting for at the end of this song was deliverance. And we have been delivered by the Lamb, and his blood has silenced our accuser. So this is our song now, and this is our song for eternity. At the cross, God used the greatest mode of shame and the greatest betrayal in human history to defeat the deceiver. And when Christ returns, he will destroy the man of lawlessness with just his breath. That's how powerful our God is. And he's for you. A day is coming when Christ will display his great power for the world to see, and he will put an end to the enemy who is the author of every lie, accusation, and hurtful world. But until then, we must learn how to live in a world that hates us with a singular hope that God is for us. So friend, when the world hates us, we must learn to believe and trust that God genuinely cares to take care of you. And I know there's some in this room who do not believe this about God. If you're not a Christian, I simply want to point you to Jesus and tell you that he offers you himself with all of his work. And he invites you to come to him and have life. 
Maybe as you read Psalm 35, you saw the hatred of these enemies and you recognize this in your own heart. Maybe you've said terrible things about God and about Christ. Maybe like many of us before we were Christians, you have spent most of your life making fun of Christians, accusing them of terrible things that are completely untrue. Well, your hatred and your mocking of people and of the Lord is a symptom of something deeper. It's a symptom of your and I's self-worshipping, rebellious heart. Jesus says that when these things come out of our mouth, it's just proving that that's what we really value. And if that's true for you, I want you to know you're not alone. You're not the only one who's drank from the poison well or listened to the deceiver. You're not the only one who's hated God in your heart. All of us have. Ephesians 2 makes this clear. All of us has followed the power of the devil. All of us have been children of wrath, but friend, God can change your hatred. There is more mercy in Christ for you than there is hatred in your heart toward him. And so if you're here and you just are seeing, maybe you've been with the trails for a little while and you've been seeing more and more of how genuinely good God is, that he is for his people, that Jesus really did come and live a perfect life and die on the cross as an expression of God's perfect love to redeem a people for himself who would dwell with him for all eternity. And that alone shows how great God is because you and I don't like hanging out with sinners. But Jesus loves to save them, and he loves to take care of them. And so maybe you've been learning this, and you're just seeing how good God is, and you just don't want to hate him anymore. Good news, God will change your hatred. I stand here as one who is proof of that. I stand here with many sitting in this room who are proof of that. The Bible is full of people who are proof of that. The Apostle Paul, who wrote half of the New Testament, is proof of that. That haters of God can become worshipers of God through the work and power of God. All you have to do is ask him to save you by the blood of Christ. He will surely do it. Don't wait another day. Come to the Lord. For all of us who have trusted Christ, I hope that this has been helpful to see that we have a song to sing when words sting. When hurtful words are hurled us, we do not have to retreat or retaliate. Instead, when words cause pain, we can run to the Lord and learn how to operate in love. And the Lord is pleased to help us because he takes care of us. The word says, great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. Again, I would pray I rephrase that for us this morning as great is the Lord who delights in taking care of you. Let's believe this, friends. When the world hurts us and words hurt us, let us run to the God who sees us and loves us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are merciful. We thank you that you shape us through the word and that you've spoken to us even right now as we read it. And we thank you that this reality that you actually care for your people and you've proven it in, in history. This isn't something we have to make up or look within or, or try to assess our own abilities or anything like that to prove and look and understand how much you care for us. It's, it was proven on a hill, on a cross, when your son bore your wrath for us. And Lord, because of that, we have been delivered, and now no accusation can stick on us because the blood of Jesus covers us. We just praise you for that. And I pray that for all of us who are here who know you, you would help us to truly walk away today believing that you really do care for us. And when we doubt that, by the Spirit, lift our eyes to the cross so that we might believe more. And then in these moments when the world hates us, help us to remember, blessed are you when you were persecuted because it's proof that we belong to you. Please do this, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from The Trails Church. We hope you have been encouraged, equipped, and edified by time spent together in God's Word. And again, if you'd like to find out more about The Trails Church, 
visit our website, thetrails.org.